I'm Steph. I'm Kim. And, and this, this is Solved, Unsolved or Spooky. Howdy, True Crimers. Hey, everyone. How are we? They're not going to answer. Aren't they? <laughs> How about you answer then? How are you? Uh, yeah, I'm right. That is good. I mean, I think we're going to end up with a gazillion little chickens because there's lots of eggs. <laughs> yeah, everyone's sitting on eggs. Mm. Well, that'll be fun. And they don't want me to touch them. No. Definitely that time of year. Mm. I will apologise for all the birds in the background. There are birds going crazy. Mm, the kookaburras were going off for a second there. All sorts of weird noises. And there's some random banging as well. I don't know what that is either. Could be the puppies. Hmm. I don't know. All right. Well, we'll do our best to edit out as much noise as we can, but we do apologise. I just have one little snippet. So with the Gabby Petito case, the coroner has ruled that strangulation was, in fact, Mm. the cause of death. I saw a thing the other day and there's lots of people weighing in on what, where they think the fiancé's gone or what's happening, but I haven't seen anything definitive yet. No, and you can't hide in this world. You just cannot hide. Not for long. He will be found. Mm-hmm. The sooner the better. All right, well, we might as well get straight into it then. Yep. And hopefully we'll have this one out kind of on time. Hopefully. <laughs> All righty. So I was looking up someone to do and I came across this, like, disgusting person. Most of them are. I just can't believe, like, every week (laughs) that you can just find this this person who's more despicable than last week. Mm. And you're not even, like, really looking. Yeah, no, there's a lot of people out there who are capable of the most horrendous things. Well, this guy is absolutely vulgar, horrid. So we'll give a trigger warning. There's all sorts of nasties happening here. He's, mm. yeah, it's quite graphic. Well, not overly graphic. It's like, yeah, but, it, but it's graphic enough that, yeah, some people won't want to hear it. Okay. So his name is Joel David Rifkin. He was born on the 20th of January, 1959. He was actually the product of two unwed college students. So they've just gone and had some fun and next minute they've got a baby and they don't want him. So they put him up for adoption. And another couple named Bernard and Jean Rifkin adopted him three weeks after his birth on Valentine's Day. And you would think because he was only three weeks old when he was adopted, mm. all's going to go well because, you know, yeah, no one's had a chance to hurt the little chap or yeah. everything's such glorious days. <laughs> so this is going to be a lovely story. Three years later, they also adopted a daughter, Jan, to make up their perfect little family. In 1965, the happy family moved to East Meadow in Long Island where Rifkin enrolled in Prospect Avenue Elementary School. Rifkin had difficulty fitting in with his peers and became a frequent target of school bullies. How many of these guys or Mm. these monsters 
are created by bullying, mm. and yet it's still rife in so, schools. Yeah, it's bizarre. It's isn't it? it was hell from day one. Something about Joel Rifkin set him apart from the other students. He had a strange quality that made him an immediate outsider, making him easy to prey on to all manner of bullies. And there's plenty out there. Mm. Classmates dubbed him, and this is horrible, it's kind of cute in a way, but not to him it wasn't, Yeah, the turtle, because he had a slouching posture and a slow gait. Mm. Like the poor kid. They excluded him from team sports and neighbourhood games. Joel was the butt of every prank and sadistic joke. Bullies assaulted him in school and pulled his pants down. That's wrong with kids. They're just horrible. They stole his luncheon books and harassed him constantly. He was also an academic failure, suffering from undiagnosed dyslexia despite a tested IQ of 128. <laughs> Joel's poor grades embarrassed his father, who was a member of the East Meadows School Board. He yelled at Joel, why can't you do anything to please me? Jean Rifkin shared her love of gardening and photography with Joel and she was oblivious to the torment that he was suffering from his peers. Oh, that's sad. She said, I thought of him as a loner and it didn't fully come to me what was happening until later. Things went from bad to worse at East Meadow High School, except for his grades. Joel was a stereotypical nerd wearing glasses and high-water pants with white socks. One of the bullies who harassed him later called Rifkin an abuse unit. Oh, it's so sad. Like, this kid's life could have been completely different without all this garbage. Mm. He was subtly obnoxious, like his presence annoyed you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Rifkin joined the track team in an effort to fit in, and was rewarded with the nickname Lardass. What is wrong with people? People are just evil. Teammates hid his clothes and shoved his head into the toilet bowl. Yuck. Instead of fighting back, and this is even sadder, Mm. Rifkin invited them to watch TV and drink beers at his house. This is one of the bullies Mm. later on. We used him to be blunt about it, one of them recalled years later. He was easy to make fun of. A failure in athletics, Rifkin joined the yearbook staff and promptly had his camera stolen. Undeterred, he slaved to put the senior yearbook out, but he was excluded from the end-of-year rap party that left him absolutely devastated. So it doesn't matter where he tries to fit in. Mm. He's just, just not. People are just treating him awfully. This left him absolutely devastated in his mother's words. Joel's parents gave him a car that year and he used it to troll for sex workers. Mm. So he's only young, he's still schooling, and he's off prostituting. Joel's fantasies included some bondage and some rape, plus a gladiator-type thing with two girls that would fight to the death. (laughs) (laughs) In some daydreams, he raped and stabbed women, but his fantasy victims were all silent. And they were just passive about it. I feel like things have really taken a turn. Yeah, I think the bullying's got to him. Yeah. After a nine, this is even worse. After a 1972 viewing of Alfred Hitchcock's Frenzy, 
loosely based on London's Jack the Ripper homicides of 1964 to 1965, he began fixating on strangling sex workers. Mm, that's not something you're supposed to take inspiration from. No, it's supposed to make you think, oh, what a nasty thought that could have been. Like, this is interesting and disturbing and mm. not, mm, you know, I'm going to use that. Mm. That's just weird. Real life romance eluded Rifkin for the most part. This is really sad. This is so sad. One high school date was scuttled after a fellow track team members trapped him in the gym and pelted him with eggs, forcing Joel to call his father for help. How awful is that? So he's going on his first date yeah, and he doesn't get there. Another time, Rifkin made it as far as the local pizza parlour with his date, but the same bullies chased him out, chasing the couple on foot until Joel and the girl found refuge in the public library. So sad. Isn't why? It? Why? Like, why is he being so tormented? I don't know. It's just horrible. Like, he probably it? would be a decent guy if people didn't actually torment him like that. And he'd been able to get himself a little girlfriend. Maybe he would have just been a bit weird, but yeah. I don't know. Graduating near the bottom of his class in 1977, Joel Rifkin looked forward to college and adulthood, probably to get away from it. Mm, Life could know. only get better, he reasoned, but the worst was yet to come. Rifkin's first attempt at higher education took him to Nassau Community College on Long Island. Bored and restless, he cut classes habitually, completing only one course in the 1977-78 academic year. Rifkin transferred to the State University of Brockport. He enjoyed the photography club but performed poorly over the next two years before dropping out in 1980. Rifkin had his only real girlfriend in Brockport, but the relationship went nowhere. She recalled Joel as being sweet but always depressed. Back at home with his parents, Rifkin tried Nassau Community College again, attending erratically, earning only 12 credits by the time he finally quit in 1984. So he's trying. Mm. He's given it a go. Throughout the 1980s, Rifkin worked a series of odd jobs around Long Island seldom staying long at any. Poor hygiene, chronic absenteeism and general ineptitude blocked the road to advancement. His employer at a local music store described Joel as a total piece of work. This guy couldn't even count to ten in his downtime. Idling between jobs and classes, Rifkin dreamed of becoming a famous writer, churning out fragments of bleak poetry. He maintained his interest in photography and horticulture, but failed to make either a paying proposition. Joel left his parents several times, renting small apartments, but he was never gone long, always moving home again when his latest job fell through. I couldn't put two nickels together, Rifkin recalled of those years, and most of what I did earn went on prostitutes. The whole focus of my life, he later said, was on the streets, where even there he proved to be inept, robbed by hookers or their pimps at least a dozen times. One girl duped him twice, using the same ruse both times to flee with his cash before sex. Rifkin's father was chronically ill, 
a heavy smoker already afflicted with emphysema. Bernard was diagnosed with prostate cancer in the fall of 1986. He was wary with the pain and by February 1987 he took a massive dose of barbiturates and died after a four-day coma. Oh, wow. So I think this was the trigger. For, I was going to say that's going to mess yeah, him up even more. Pretty sad. One person in his life, even though, you know, he could never meet his father's expectations. But it's still, it was still yeah, a, a huge impact on him. Joel delivered a eulogy at his father's funeral, moving the mourners to tears, and his depression deepened. He was also arrested in Hampstead in August 1987 after soliciting sex from an undercover policewoman. Oh. But he escaped with a nominal fine. And instead of keeping him away from prostitutes, the incident made him more devious. They started being careful. Yeah. Looking around. In 1988, Rifkin enrolled in a two-year horticulture study program at the State College of Technology in Farmingdale, New York. For the first time in his life, he made straight A's for two consecutive semesters. Rewarded by selection for an internship at the prestigious planting fields Arboretum in Oyster Bay, New York, the appointment was an honour and it had unexpected bonuses. Joel found himself strongly attracted to one of the other interns. She was a pretty blonde. But while he shadowed her at every opportunity, he never found the nerve to ask her out. Instead, he concocted an elaborate fantasy affair, and he was frustrated beyond endurance when she failed to reciprocate his secret passion. <laughs> it was finally too much. Years of pent-up anger and humiliation craved release. Rifkin had reached the detonation point. All he required now was a target. Despite his history of morbid fantasy, Rifkin would later claim he had to plan the murder of his first victim in March 1989. Rifkin acknowledged that his violent mental images were a little more intense than regular at the time. His mother chose that month to travel out of state, leaving Joel alone in the East Meadow house. Cruising Manhattan's East Village for hookers one night at about 10pm, he selected a young woman he remembered only as Susie. She was a hardcore drug addict, demanding several stops to purchase crack before they drove back to Long Island. After listless sex, Susie again asked Joel to take her out in search of drugs. Instead, he picked up a souvenir howitzer shell and beat her furiously. I just lost control, he said later. I stopped when I got tired. Susie was still alive, however, and she fought back when he tried to move her biting one of Rifkin's fingers deeply before he strangled her to death. After wrestling her body into a plastic trash bag, Rifkin cleaned up the blood and signs of combat in his living room, then lay down and slept for several hours as if nothing had happened. I don't get how they do that. Like, well, I think he's exhausted. There's he's so been... many. No, but like so many circles and that. They just kill someone and then they're like, oh, you know what, I need a nap. And their body's just like there. Yeah. And they're like, don't even care. Upon waking, he dragged Susie down to the basement, draped her body across the washer and dryer. Look how much mess is this guy making? Mm. Then used that makeshift operating table to dismember her corpse. Oh, with lovely. An, with an exacto knife. Oh, 
In the craft knife? I think so. Oh, I do remember this one. Yeah, he's pretty nasty. In his mind, the green task was reduced to biology class to foil identification. Rifkin severed Susie's fingertips and pulled her teeth out with pliers, mm. then jammed her severed head into an old paint can. Yeah, lovely. Mm. Like, how do people even think of this stuff? I, I don't know. It's just science. Probably. I was just thinking, I don't know what biology class he was doing. But, <laughs> I mean. Yeah, I never took that one. I dissected a, a sheep's heart, an eye, and a rat, and something else, but. Uh, we didn't learn any of that stuff. No. <laughs> the other parts went into garbage bags and then into his mother's car. I love that he's just so freely using his mother's house, yeah. his mother's car. Like, <laughs> he does not care. No. Rifkin drove the body parts across the state line to New Jersey, dropping the head and legs in the woods near Hopewell. Doubling back from there, he returned to Manhattan, pitching the arms and torso into the East River. Rifkin believed his victims would never be found, but he had been careless. Because he's so smart at disposing of it. And he planned it all (sighs) terribly well. On March 5, 1989, a member of the Hopewell Valley Golf Club sliced his ball into the woods along the seventh green and found the can containing Susie's head. That's not something you really want to find. Rifkin suffered a major anxiety attack after learning that Susie was HIV positive. Following the case, as police prepared artist renderings of the victim in life and checked them against a list of 700 missing women. Susie has never been identified. The case remained unsolved until Rifkin confessed in 1993. Joel waited more than a year to claim his second victim, and he was vague on dates. Different reports placing the crime 14 months after Susie's murder or in late 1990. The victim was another sex worker, Julie Blackbird. He selected her because of her pseudo-Madonna look. They're his words. Rifkin drove her home to East Meadow when his mother was again out of town. I was going to say, doesn't he, like, wait for his mum to be, like, out of town every time? Every time. It's a little sicko. Gross. And they spent the night together. At about nine the next morning, Rifkin recalled completely bugging out. His words again. Beating Blackbird with a heavy table leg before he strangled her. When she was dead, he considered raping her corpse in conscious emulation of serial killer Ted Bundy. This guy hasn't got a mind of his own. Mm. It's all about, like, I've watched this movie. Yeah. I'm do that. Oh, I could do this because Ted Bundy did it. But the prospect repulsed him. I will stop there for a second. There are some people on the property shooting and you can probably, there's some bangs in the background. We finally figured out what it is. I know. I went out there and I was like, what is that noise? What is that noise? So Kim will try and edit them out, but there may be just some bangs in the background. We do apologize for that. All right. Determined not to bungle the disposal this time, Rifkin went out to purchase cement and a large mortar pan. Once again, he's so gross, he dismembered the corpse as before, placing the head, the arms and legs in buckets weighted with concrete. The torso filled a milk crate by itself. Driving to Manhattan, he consigned Blackbird's head 
and torso to the East River and dropped her weighted arms and legs into a Brooklyn barge canal. Her remains were never found. Mm, that's sad. So sad, but what a lot of work. I just don't understand people. <laughs> so much energy involved. I love how you like, the, the whole bit's like, okay, whatever. You're like, the work though. <laughs> <laughs> the only reason we know what happened to Blackbird is because Rifkin has confessed and because the police did find her diary stashed in his bedroom. That's so sad, though. Yeah. Like, it'd be good if they found her body and they could put it to rest. Oh, it's so awful. I mean, it's just horrible. There must be bodies everywhere. Like, just everywhere. I know. I, I don't know why, but I think about it sometimes. I'm like, how many bodies are just never found? Yeah, so many. Oh. Murder was easy. Joel couldn't wait to play the deadly game again. Of course. Mm. Rifkin started his own landscaping business in April 1991. Oh, yeah. Where he rented mm. a space at a local nursery to store his equipment. Lots of guys do this too, hey? <laughs> Keep your bodies at work. <sighs> it was a half-hearted effort at best. He complained to his landlord, I keep losing all my customers. <laughs> Gee, I wonder why. <laughs> and by summer he was falling behind on his rent. The obsession with murder had consumed his life and he began using the rented job site as a way station for corpses in transit. So, kill ya, chop you up, take you to work, leave you there for a little while. That's and disturbing. And you. Barbara Jacobs was the next one to die. She was a 31-year-old uh, drug addict with arrests on her record for auto theft and prostitution. Joel picked her up on July 13, 1991 and took her home to the East Meadow home for sex. When she fell asleep, he clubbed her with the same table leg he'd used on Julie Blackbird, then finished the job by manual strangulation. Put off by the thought of another dismemberment, Rifkin wrapped Jacobs in plastic, folded her into a cardboard box, and placed her in the back of his mother's Toyota pickup. I just don't understand, like... His mum's car that he's moving dead bodies around him. He just doesn't care. They want to use his own. <sighs> he drove to the Hudson River, dropping her into the water near a cement plant. She was found hours later by firefighters on a training exercise. But this time, Rifkin reported, it didn't even phase me. Hmm. The, the coroner blamed her de- death on a drug overdose. Oh. Like she's been beaten to death with a, a table, table leg, yeah. leg and strangled, but it was an overdose. I'm pretty sure that you don't get those markings from just an overdose. Not usually. No. Hmm. Jacobs was buried Although in Although they are like drug users and oh, prostitutes. They, yeah. I was going to say, so in their eyes they're probably like, well, we don't really care. We'll just like paperwork and, yeah. Terrible because they're like, they're, Human, they're women, like they are, you know, yep, like we're still a person, they are. It's so sad who's been murdered. I hate it when they, like you read things like this and they're like, literally like, yeah, we don't even care. No, they don't care, and they don't care about most of them, to be honest. Mm. Jacobs was buried in Pottersfield Cemetery, so that's like it's a really bad outcome, but it's a good outcome, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, at, at least, least she was found, she's been found, and she's and been buried, got a family. 
so sad. She was also unidentified until Rifkin confessed of her murders two years later. Then crack addict Mary Ellen DeLuca, a 22-year-old Long Island native, 22, Mm. she's just a baby, was last seen alive at 11 p.m. on September 1, 1991, when she left a group of friends to earn the price of her next fix. Rifkin found her on Jamaica Avenue in Queens and drove her around New York until sunrise, shelling out $150 for drugs at various stops. They wound up at a cheap motel. DeLuca, first balking at sex and demanding more dope, then rushing through the act, complaining all the while. At some point in the litany, Rifkin asked DeLuca if she wanted to die and she allegedly said yes. Mm, I don't Mm -hmm. know if we believe that. I don't think we believe his little story. Nah. As he strangled her, Rifkin recalled she did nothing, just accepted it. He remembered her murder as one of the weird ones. I don't know. I think all of them would be weird because murdering is kind of weird. So I'd be like... "Mm." I think he's just a little bit odd and likes the sound of his own voice. Yeah. It also left Rifkin with a new problem. Afraid to drag the corpse out in broad daylight because he's at a motel, Mm. he drew inspiration from Hitchcock's frenzy and went out to purchase a cheap steamer trunk. Like, no ideas of his own. Squeezing DeLuca inside it, from the motel he drove upstate to Orange County and left DeLuca's body at a rest stop outside Cornwall, near West Point. She was found on October 1, nude except for a bra and without ID. Mm. Decomposition made it impossible to determine a cause of death. So he's just, she's in a steamer. Obviously, something bad's happened to her. Yeah. She was. Buried. I mean, you don't put yourself there. No. So, she was buried nameless, unidentified until June 1993. Rifkin's selection process was erratic, sparing most of the sex workers he patronised on a near nightly basis, prompting him to kill others on a whim. One September night, he picked up 31-year-old Yun Lee, a Korean native he'd been with before. She was his second sex worker in that hour. That might explain his failure to perform as Lee went to work. He struck her on impulse, strangling her while she mouthed something about making a big mistake. It was Rifkin's first murder of someone he knew beforehand, and he experienced fleeting remorse. Actually, he said later, I thought I liked her. Don't want to be liked by someone like him. No. Rifkin wedged Lee into the same trunk he'd used for Mary DeLuca and dropped her in the East River. She was found on September 23, eight days before DeLuca. He likes the East River. Mm. If I was a cop, I'd be staking out these rivers. You would, wouldn't you? But no one cares and yeah. no one's even noticing these girls are missing. Missing, yeah. That's... So, yeah, they just... But aren't you, seeing, aren't you finding random bodies washing up and body yeah, pieces? especially chopped up ones. Yeah, I'd be like, hmm, that's definitely going on here. The first two chopped up ones, if the cops had both of them, mm. would start you thinking, I think, but something's Something's definitely going on, yeah. She was floating past Randall's Island at the Harlem River's mouth. Lee's ex-husband identified the body, sparing her from an unmarked grave. <sighs> so that's good. Mm. 
Rifkin could not recall the name of number six. Murdered a few days shy of Christmas 1991. He picked her up on West Street in Manhattan and strangled her in his car during oral sex. Describing the event as very quick. Afterwards, he drove back to Long Island with the body slumped beside him. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's getting a bit cocky, isn't he? Mm. Concealing her under a tarp at his rented workplace. Next, he drove to a recycling plant in Westbury where he had once worked part-time and helped himself to a 55-gallon oil drum. Oh. Mm. Another thing a lot of these serial killers do. Mm. There was ample room for Jane Doe in the barrel. Safely hidden for their ride to the South Bronx, where Rifkin found a district rife with junkyards and rolled her into the East River. About to leave, he was confronted by a patrolman. This just makes me cringy. <laughs> he was confronted by a patrolman who accused him of illegal dumping, but Joel persuaded him that he was collecting junk instead, so they let him go with a warning. Oh. So if they'd have checked it. Yeah. The oil drum worked so well for Rifkin that he purchased several more for use as makeshift coffins. He used the next one on Lorraine Orvieto, a 28-year-old manic depressant who tried to control her mood swings with cocaine. The habit was expensive and she tried to keep herself supplied. It was a life far removed from her affluent Long Island home where she'd been a high school cheerleader. Rifkin found Orvieto on December 26, 1991 in Bayshore, Long Island. He parked near a schoolyard fence and strangled her while she performed oral sex. Discovering her HIV positive status when he found a bottle of AZT in her purse. He kept the pills along with her jewellery and ID as souvenirs of the kill. Mm, lovely. Mm, he's got lots of souvenirs. Back at the landscaping lot, Rifkin stuffed her into an oil drum, drove her body to Brooklyn and dropped it into the Coney Island Creek. She was found by fishermen on 11th of July 1992, two months before her family filed a missing persons report. Mm. So parents, family don't care yeah. either. So sad. It was a killer's dream come true. No one was looking for these girls. One week after he killed Lorraine, on January 2, 1992, Rifkin went hunting again. And it's such easy hunting because mm. these girls, they're desperate. Yeah. They get into his car and they're just trapped. Well, they don't know who, you know, you're not going to just expect to hear the serial killer. No. I mean, I could not imagine having to do that job because you – you would get these weird guys. Oh, you that would get weird guys all the time. You'd be terrified. You would be terrified. But like, these girls obviously seem like they have no other choice. Yep. yep. So sad. It is very sad, and they're taken, like, advantage of. Mm. Mm. At 39, Marianne Holliman was his oldest victim, an addict who sewed personalised G-strings for strippers when she wasn't working the streets. That's an interesting job. Mm. Rifkin drove her to the same parking lot where he'd taken Yun Lee and strangled her during fellatio. Later, he recalled the act as very automatic. Not much with that one. He followed the same disposal procedure as with Ovieto. 
back to Long Island, the Oil Drum and Coney Island Creek. An anonymous caller reported Holloman's floating remains to police on July 9, 1992, two days before Orvieto's corpse was found. Holloman was identified from dental records and returned to her family for burial. Two floaters in as many days suggested a serial killer at large. I mean, I feel like that was evident like several bodies ago. But New York police had their hands full with 2,000 murders a year in those days. Whoa. Like, what? What was happening back then? I mean, a lot happened back then, to be honest. Drug-taking sex workers were never a high priority. Mm. Rifkin's ninth victim, ironically, surfaced before numbers seven and eight. He was vague on the details in later confessions, unable to recall the woman's name, if he had ever known it. He remembered her tattoos, a pickup in Manhattan, and the way she fought for a life when he began to strangle her. She followed Mary Holloman sometime that winter. Dismembered remains were thrown in oil drums. He dropped her into Brooklyn's Newtown Creek, where she was spotted floating with the current. Her foot was protruding from the rusty barrel on May 13, 1992. And the cocaine in her system prompted detectives to brand her a drug mule. She was, they said she was killed accidentally by the rupture of drug-filled condoms in her stomach. Ugh. So, like, there's so many that they're making up some ridiculous other yeah. tale for. Police learned their mistake a year later when Rifkin confessed to slaying her. But number nine remains anonymous, the last Jane Doe. Mm. So sad. Rifkin went back to school in spring of 1992, taking uncredited classes at Sunny Farming Dale. His landscaping business had folded by then, his landlord clamouring for $700 in overdue rent. As before, Joel cut most of his classes. Focused for the most part on repairing his truck, renting video porn, and trolling for prey. Like, where, where's he getting his money from? I don't know. Like, he's not even going to school, and he doesn't like he has a job anymore. He doesn't stay his job for And long. he's just doing his own thing. I, like, how are you funding this? Yeah. He found Iris Sanchez, a 25-year-old crack addict, working First Avenue on Mother's Day weekend. Rifkin was AWOL from his part-time job at an East Meadow liquor store. Oh, there you go. And he was looking for trouble. He picked Sanchez up in broad daylight, driving to her to a Manhattan housing project down by where Macy's has the fireworks. After strangling Sanchez during sex, he drove her corpse across the Brooklyn Bridge. Seeing a drop-off point, the site he chose was an illegal dump. 200 feet, off Rockway Boulevard, within sight of the JFK International Airport. Rifkin wedged the body underneath a rotting mattress, first relieving Sanchez of her watch and other jewellery. She would not be found until June 1993 when Rifkin drew detectives a map. I find this crazy because it's literally right at the airport. Yeah, I know. He's like just outside of it. He doesn't care anymore. He's just... No, but how did no one find her? I know, it's crazy, hey? Like, what? The smell would be. Like, it's actually at the airport. It's crazy, hey? 
At age 33, Anna Lopez had three children by three different fathers, but she worked the streets primarily to feed her own cocaine addiction. Rifkin found her on May 25, 1992, Memorial Day, working Atlantic Avenue in Queens and retired to a nearby residential street for sex. After strangling Lopez in his car, Rifkin drove through the night to Brewster in Putnam County and dumped her along I-84. A motorist stopping to relieve himself found Lopez the next day. She was missing one earring, later found in Rifkin's bedroom stash. Mm. Violet O'Neill, a 21-year-old sex worker, was the first victim Rifkin had taken home to East Meadow in nearly a year. He picked her up in the city, strangled her after sex at his mother's house, and dismembered her corpse in the bathtub. Yeah. Mm, that's not what bathtubs are for. No. Rifkin consigned her remains to the water surrounding Manhattan. Her torso surfaced in the Hudson River, wrapped in black plastic, while her arms and legs were found in a discarded suitcase. Mary Catherine Williams, 10 years older than O'Neill, such 31, had been a high school homecoming queen and college cheerleader in her native North Carolina. So they're just beautiful young girls that, mm. have, you know, somehow got addicted to drugs and trying yeah. to support themselves. Like, it's just horrible. She'd married a pro football player in 1986 and divorced the following year, and she'd come to New York in search of an acting career, but wound up doing drugs and living on the streets. Rifkin had dated Williams twice and enjoyed a great time before the final pickup on October 2, 1992. He bought Williams a fix that night, then tried to choke her when she dozed off in his mother's car. She woke up fighting for her life, kicking the gear shift hard enough to snap it off before Joel smothered her. After a struggle to get the car started and moving, Rifkin drove Williams to Yorktown, a Westchester suburb, where she was found on December 21, 1992. He kept her credit cards and a wicker handbag filled with costume jewellery, so much, in fact, that the amount would briefly cause detectives to inflate his body count. Williams would fill another nameless pauper's grave until Rifkin confessed to her murder. That's sad. And that was six months after she was found. Mm. Jenny Soto was the last victim of 1992. She was a 23-year-old addict whose many trips to detox Never, you know, couldn't she couldn't get out of it. Mm. Rifkin picked her up at about 11 p.m. on November 16 near the Williamsburg Bridge in Lower Manhattan. She was strangled in Joel's pickup after sex and she proved the toughest one to kill, he said. She broke all ten fingernails as she clawed Rifkin's face uh. and neck. Uh, she was winded from the battle. Mm. Rifkin claimed her bra and panties earrings, ID cards, and drug syringes trophies. He rolled Soto into the Harlem River near the spot where Yun Lee had been found 14 months earlier, and she was discovered the following day. Soto was identified from fingerprint records of her last arrest. Police initially suspecting an ex-con, ex-boyfriend for the murder. Soto's grim fight for life gave Rifkin pause. 
Her slaying capped his own frenzied acceleration period and left him with embarrassing wounds to explain. I was going to say. Joel would not strike again for 15 weeks. When he did, he would take better care to hide his tracks. Rifkin's first victim of 1993 was Leah Evans, a 28-year-old who lived with a mother in Brooklyn. Abandoned by the father of her two children, Evans found solace in drugs and worked the streets to keep herself well. Rifkin found her trekking on February 27, 1993, stopping for sex in an abandoned parking lot. Evans started to undress, then balked, demanding greater privacy. Rifkin refused, strangling her when she started to cry. Afterwards, he drove Evans to the far eastern end of Long Island and buried her in the woods. The only one of his victims who raided a shallow grave. Mm-hmm. Hikers found her on May 9 after they spied a withered hand protruding from the ground. A forensic anthropologist was hired to reconstruct the victim's face, but Rifkin confessed before the model was finished. Police found Evans' driver's license at his home. The next to die was Lauren Marquez. She's a 28 year old addict and sex worker. She was hooked on drugs before she left her native Tennessee for New York City. Rifkin picked her up on April 2, 1993, while she was working 2nd Avenue. They drove to a point near the Manhattan Bridge. Rifkin, clutching at her throat without the usual preliminaries, briefly distracted by a man who passed the car walking a dog. He almost let Marquez escape. She fought him, resisting strangulation until he snapped her neck. Uh-huh. Rifkin dumped her body in the Suffolk County Pine Barrens, where she lay undiscovered until his arrest. Besides a broken neck, Marquez had fractured ribs, although Rifkin claimed he could not remember hitting her because he's so frenzied. Mm. She was identified through DNA testing on August 20, 1993. Rifkin's last victim, Tiffany Bresciani, was another southern girl. She hailed from Metairie, Louisiana, and had been drawn to New York by dreams of acting or dancing. Instead, she wound up hooked on heroin, performing for strangers in strip clubs and cars. By the time Rifkin found her, in the pre-dawn hours of June 24, 1993, she was his second hooker of the night, his fourth within two days. Man, he's busy. Mm. Rifkin picked her up on Allen Street and drove her to New York Post parking lot where he strangled her at 5.30 a.m. From there, he drove back to East Meadow, stopping at stores along the way for a rope and a tarp, Mm. while Bresciani lay sprawled in the back seat of his mother's car. By the time he got home, she was swaddled in a tarp and concealed in the trunk. Rifkin arrived home, and his mother demanded the car keys to embark on a 30-minute shopping trip, with the corpse still in the trunk. And I was thinking, like, what if your mum... Needs to put stuff in the boot. I know. Like, what? Rifkin had no time to remove the corpse, but his mother never knew. Relieved of this little anxiety attack, Joel moved Bresciani into the cluttered garage, leaving her body in a wheelbarrow. Then, as if in a vague state, 
he spent the next three days working on his pickup truck. Ignoring the summer heat and the pervasive reek of decomposing flesh, he was on his way to dump the corpse near Melville's Republic Airport. He loves just being in your face. Mm. Some 15 miles north of his house. However, New York State Troopers Sean Rawn and Deborah Spargaran were patrolling Long Island Southern State Parkway at 3.15am on June 28, 1993, when they spotted a Mazda pickup truck with no rear licence plate. Mm, stuff. Hmm. When flashing red lights failed to stop the driver, they used the loudspeaker, ordering the driver to halt, but he accelerated, speeding down the next off-ramp and into the streets of Wontar. The wild chase was on. The cops called for backup as they as they pursued their quarry to ne- at nearly ninety miles an hour. That sounds like a lot. How much is miles? It's probably around about one hundred and eighty kilometers an hour. Okay, that's pretty, that's pretty fast. Hmm. Five more patrol cars joined in the convoy, sirens wailing, before the Mazda's driver missed a turn and crashed his truck into a telephone pole at three thirty six a.m. He offered no resistance as police removed him from the pickup frisked him for weapons, and removed an X-Acto knife from his pocket. Oh, God. It's not the one he used, is it? I'd say so. The driver's licence identified him as 34-year-old Joel David Rifkin, residing on Garden Street, East Meadow, Long Island. He was generally unkempt, and a thick layer of noxema was smeared across his moustache. When told his truck had no rear licence plate, Rifkin assured the officers it had been present when he left his home some 40 minutes earlier. He had no explanation for the wild flight to avoid a minor traffic ticket. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just sped off at a really high speed. No, I don't know why. I just thought I'd give guys a chase. But the cause of Rifkin's panic was revealed moments later. Drawn to the pickup's bed by a foul odour, Troopers peeled back a blue tarp and found a woman's naked, decomposing corpse. She appeared to have been dead for several days. That explained why he had the noxema under his nose. Mm. It was a trick for handling corpses to avoid their stench, which was portrayed by Hollywood two years earlier in the Oscar-winning Silence of the Lambs. So yet again, again, he's watching a movie, he's got an idea, we'll go with that. When asked about the body, Rifkin said she was a prostitute. I picked her up on Allen Street in Manhattan. I had sex with her. Then things went bad and I strangled her. Oh, okay. I... Do you think I need a lawyer? <laughs> yes, I believe you will. Rifkin was booked at Hampstead, where homicide detectives launched a marathon interrogation. Officers staked out the house in East Meadow, where Rifkin lived with his sister and elderly mother. A telephone call from police told 71-year-old Jean Rifkin that her son had been detained after a traffic incident. The rest would be revealed to her on television hours later when detectives laid the outline of their case before the media. That is not how you want to find out. Nope. Rifkin's victim was identified as Tiffany Bresciani, a 22-year-old Louisiana native, tricking in Manhattan for the past two years to feed her drug habit. During questioning, Rifkin described her death in clinical detail. But his emotional detachment was not the worst part about the confession. The murder, detectives gathered, was not his first. 
No, very much not. No. Bresciani, in fact, was number 17, Rifkin said. It was nearly 8pm when authorities presented Jean Rifkin with a search warrant. Scouring her two-storey house for evidence against the man who appeared to be New York's most prolific serial killer. When they left six hours later, the searchers carried off at least 228 items. One report claimed there were more than a 1,000. Mm. All linked to Rifkin's four-year murder spree. His upstairs bedroom yielded 75 pieces of women's jewellery, photographs Rifkin had taken on of several unidentified women, various items of female clothing, makeup cases, a woman's curling iron, wallets and pocketbooks, plus a mixed bag of ID cards. One driver's licence belonging to Mary DeLuca, another belonging to Jenny Soto, fished out of the Harlem River in November 1992. Rifkin's bedroom reading material included a book on the unidentified Green River Killer and news clippings about the case of the New York serial slayer Arthur Shawcross. In Rifkin's cluttered garage, detectives followed their noses to a reeking wheelbarrow. Oh, God. Extracting three ounces of human blood, a pair of women's panties lay on the floor near a stockpile of rope and tarp, a chainsaw found in the garage was stained with blood and bits of human flesh. Neighbours recalled strange odours emanating from Rifkin's garage, but they'd all assumed he stored insecticides in there for use in his garden and landscaping business. They were they were all very wrong. I was about it, to was say, a, it was the smell of death and it would linger long after the source had been removed. I feel like they're very different smells, though. I think so. Although if you're a neighbour, you're just telling yourself that's, Definitely not a dead body. No, no dead body. Purely just insecticide. <laughs> Homicide detectives began interrogating Rifkin on June 28, 1993. He described all 17 murders, writing out the names he remembered, and even sketching maps to help police find the victims still missing. He was transferred to a county correctional facility in East Meadow to prepare to stand trial. On May 9, 1994, he was sentenced to 25 years to life for murder, as well as for reckless endangerment for leading police on a car chase. Rifkin was transferred to Suffolk County Jail shortly after the trial, where Rifkin pleaded guilty to two more counts of murder. He received two more consecutive terms of 25 for life in prison. By January 1996, he was scheduled to serve at least 183 years for seven slayings with 10 counts outstanding. Wow. Crazy, hey? Just put him in jail and, if they didn't and throw catch him, He would have still kept going. Oh, 100%. That many. Yeah. That same year, after several conflicts with other inmates, prison officials decided that Rifkin's presence at the prison was disruptive. He was placed in solitary confinement at the Attica Correctional Facility for 23 hours a day over the course of four years. In wow. 2000, Rifkin attempted to sue the prison for violating his constitutional rights, saying that he should not be in solitary confinement. The court ruled in favour of the prison. Corrections officials say Rifkin is now imprisoned with more than 200 other inmates at Clinton who are not allowed to mix with the general prison population. In 2002, New York's Supreme Court rejected Rifkin's appeal for his convictions for the murder of nine women 
Rifkin is now serving 203 years in the Clinton Correctional Facility and he is eligible for parole in 2197 at the age of 238. I was going to say, I don't think he's getting to I don't think he's going. Bernard, Rifkin's adopted father, would never learn about his son's, you know, 17 murders. It's probably for the best. Yep. So Jan and Jean, his sister and mother, would only learn off the TV when Tiffany Bresciani was in the trunk. Just a few days earlier, Jean had driven the car while the body was decomposing in the trunk. She says she was completely unaware of the corpse and she testified that at a pre-trial hearing. Although I feel like... It was in her garage and her car. Like, you would smell something. Wouldn't you be curious? I think you would be a curious of all the stuff mounting in your son's bedroom. Well, I don't well, nice. I don't know about that because I don't know if she would have gone in there. No, I don't know. Like, he's, I don't know. Fits us. But I feel like there's some things, like, you would have noticed. That smell, I think so. Yeah. It was described as being crestfallen and in shock. You only have to go in there and take one look at her to know that she had no inkling of this, neighbour Joy Rita told Times. Jan and Jean regularly showed up for Joel during the trial. They apparently visited him twice a week and phoned him while he was in jail, awaiting his conviction. During his sentencing, they watched teary-eyed as he apologised to the victim's families. I want you to know that I am sorry for what I have done to you and your daughters. I will go to my grave carrying the deaths of these innocent women with me, he said, while Jan and Jean stayed mostly silent during the court proceedings, even as reporters staked out their now infamous home. His sister did speak to the press. You'll love this. He's not evil, and I'm not either. All I can say is I love my brother. I love him. It'll probably be distorted. I can't trust anyone, she said when questioned by the media. How's it going to be distorted? Facts are facts. He killed 17 women mm, and yeah. you know what I mean? The next time Rifkin was to make headlines was in April 1998. The news involved the sale of his artworks at New York State Office Building in Albany as a part of a program to compensate crime victims. 50% of the proceeds from the sale were earmarked for New York Crimes Victims Board with inmate artists retaining the rest. Most of Rifkin's 20 paintings and sketches depicted wildflowers or wildlife, but one titled Guardian's Failure showed a barefoot with a coroner's toe tag and an angel weeping in the corner. Hmm. Buoyed perhaps by that effort, in August 1999, Rifkin unveiled his plans for Ohola House. You're going to love this. (laughs) A proposed shelter for prostitutes. That would include drug treatment, counselling, medical care and job training. Ohola, Rifkin explained, was both the Hebrew word for sanctuary and the name of a prostitute whose violent death is described in Ezekiel. It's part of the Bible, I can't read it. In fact, the latter name is spelled O-A-H-O-L-A-H. Rifkin called his plan a way of paying back a debt. I guess. And while the idea drew praise from some quarters, including Prosecutor Fred Klein, most objected to Rifkin's inclusion of a motivation room where residents would be scared straight. 
with photos of hookers murdered on the job. These girls think I can't be touched, Rifkin explained. Well, 17 girls thought that, and now they're dead. Uh, so really, he doesn't really want to do anything nice for him. He's just a jerk. Like what? I'm pretty sure every night they go out, they're like, I need to protect myself. There's weird guys out here yep. like you. Yep. Um. Yeah, I don't think they need that. I think they just need help Yep. and support. There's some more words of his here. This is all his words. I must have hit her 20, 30 times until my arms got tired. He shared this with Ladinich, a former cop at the Attica Correctional Facility. It was a howitzer shell I picked up at a flea market for like 25 cents to 50 cents. As Rifkin continues, he reveals he thought the victim was unconscious following the initial attack. It was just two-handed like a baseball bat. Sideways up from the top, he recalls. I just lost control. Rifkin surprised the victim got up following the near-fatal beating and he now believes he strangled her out of panic. Looking back on this conversation in a confessional, the cop describes Rifkin as being unemotional and so matter-of-fact when recounting his crimes. In fact, he said, Rifkin has a complete disconnect from reality on how he felt after the killings. Rifkin is heard saying, there were times where I got very anxious about it, there were times where I got paranoid about it, but there were times when it was pleasurable. Rifkin explains how an exacto knife could be used to decapitate a victim. The prolific serial killer comments, it works just like a scalpel. Rifkin compares dismembering a body and putting the parts into buckets as a job. And that is the end of my gross horror, horror story. <laughs> that was a lot. That was a lot, like 17. Seventeen girls, just mm. oh, like horrifically murdered and mutilated. And like you said, like he wouldn't, unless if he wasn't stopped, he wouldn't have stopped. He would not have stopped. He was like on a roll. Even though he's like, I'm so sorry, and I'll take this to my grave. But no, if, you won't. Mate. If the cops, you know, had cared more about that, those people, yeah, they wouldn't have got this far. Oh, they could. They probably could have stopped it a long time ago before they got. Definitely before they got to seventeen. So sad. Well, that's all I've got. You got anything? No. No. <laughs> we'll have to trawl, see if we can find something a little lighter. <laughs> Good luck. Yeah. If you've week. got any listener stories for us, I think I would love to do an episode mm. of listener stories. So if you've got any, like, horrid little stories of your own or funny little stories of your own and you want to share them with us, email us at podcast at solved unsolved or spooky.com anything else no that's all from us we'll see everyone next week okay. bye bye thank you for listening we hope you enjoyed the podcast you can follow us at facebook at solved unsolved or spooky on twitter at hashtag or solved instagram at solved unsolved or spooky you can email us at podcast at solved unsolved or spooky.com and if you want to support the show, go to Podfan and find Solved, Unsolved or Spooky and pick one of the tiers. Thank you. Please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes.